Hello and welcome to the June edition of the Vera Magazine podcast. I'm Johnny Ensel, your guide for another all-adventure through global trends, entertainment, culture and plenty more besides. This month we'll be stepping to the beat with an audiophiles guide to Manchester, discovering why mead isn't just for medieval cosplayers and hearing the story behind the world's first ever LGBTQ walk of fame in San Francisco. And there'll also be a little bit of this. They're bulletproof suits, I get it. Yeah, I don't know the science there. This this is the level to which I enjoy these movies. If someone was like, it's a bulletproof suit, I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> Up first, Red Hot. That bit of the podcast where we find out what's trending around the globe in the worlds of culture, food, fashion, etc. And for this, we're joined by Vera editor Jessica Poopers. Hello, Jess. Hi, how's it going? Uh, well, I'm hyped to hear about hyped things there's a lot of, i i, I want to know the hype effectively where would you like to start in the world this time yeah let's go to new york city mm-hmm. the big apple as they call it <laughs> yeah they do are you aware of the lincoln center have you been there uh, i've not been to the lincoln center but i know of it uh, it's a sort of big kind of sprawling cultural center very famous Mm. Uh, I think it features, you know, in the film Whiplash, it's like where everybody wants to go and play jazz. Yes, well, that's exactly it. And this year they're doing the second year of Summer for the City, which is just like essentially the ultimate summer festival, really. The ultimate kind of New York summer experience. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's all free. And it's just like 20 festivals rolled into one Mm. so there's thousands and thousands of events performances art theater music you know club nights it's big is what i'm trying to say yeah but it's not it's not a festival like glastonbury or something like that it's more of a kind of arts festival is is that correct yeah it's like a more like a cultural festival in the vein of um, Edinburgh International, if you've heard of that. Right, yes, yes. But but with a very New York spin. So uh, yeah. when's it happening? June 14th to August 12th. Uh, okay, brilliant. So uh, that's called Summer for the City uh, in New York. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Okay, uh, let's move on. What do you think of mead? Uh, mead is honey wine. Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, it's, it's like a kind of like a liquor made from honey. I, I mean, I associate mead with tankards and people in Viking costumes. Mm, indeed. The whole sort of what, what you might call being a North American Renaissance Fair. <laughs> Is that a North American thing? Oh, yeah. We don't have those in the UK. Why? Because you're just living through history. Yeah, all we, the time. we don't have to. We don't have to pretend history because it's there all around <laughs> us all the time. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit of a Dungeons and Dragonsy drink, mm. um, but I think now people are making it a bit cool. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like who and where? Uh, so Gosnell's Mead. They're a meadery in South London, and you can go to their tap room. You can drink their delicious meads. Their meat is being served in cocktails around the city. So the new Nessa Bistro in London, which is yeah. on the bottom floor of a new members club, mm-hmm. they serve a cocktail called the Honeyed Nail, and it's got Gosnell's mead, scotch, and honeycomb in it. So it's like a spin on a rusty nail with mead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, Skull Beer Hall in Seattle. It's that's quite a cool beer hall in the city. Mm. They do a cocktail called the Lavender Lady, which has got Lavender, citrus mead, and honey simple syrup. Sounds very tasty. Mm. And it's tasty and it's sweet. And 
Yeah, why not? I'm not. I'm not going to ask any more questions of that. You know, Mead. Fine. Tick. <laughs> I'm on board. Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, um, what about maybe in the world of food? The Astrid LA. Mm, a restaurant. A restaurant newly opened. Um, I had the pleasure of going there when I was in LA last month. It's in the Walt Disney Concert Hall, which is an iconic building downtown designed by Frank Gehry. It's very like wavy on the outside, <laughs> if, like, if that makes sense. That, that's your architectural assessment. Yeah, wavy. Wavy, that's yeah. a That's a technical term, actually. <laughs> Anyways, it's the restaurant on the bottom of the concert hall. The chef is Ray Garcia. He's known for his restaurant Broken Spanish, which unfortunately closed down during the pandemic, much to the chagrin of Angelino's. And it was known for fusing like Mexican flavors with Southern California flavors. And that's essentially what he's carried over to the Astrid. It's a similar concept. So, you know, on the menu, you'll find dishes like a short rib with chipotle domingo rojo beans and cactus pieces. Mm, I love a cactus piece. Yeah, sounds delicious. Not a whole cactus for me, just a, <laughs> just a piece, please. Just a little piece of cactus. Yeah. Okay, so I'm getting the impression of a place which is like quintessentially Los Angeles. It's kind of pulling together different cultural elements of the city mm-hmm. into almost into a literal melting pot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a big stew. A big stew, a hearty stew. Okay, mm-hmm. what else can you serve us up? How about the Future Found Sanctuary? Mm-hmm. In Cape Town. What is this? This is a hotel with villa accommodation at the top of Table Mountain. You know Table Mountain. It's an iconic mountain in Cape Town. Yeah, looks like a table. Looks like a table because it's flat on top. This has been built on a slope near the top of Table Mountain. Very prime real estate. Yeah. So it's seven acres and it borders a national park and the Cape Floral region, which is a really stunning um, protected region that is like one of the most biodiverse areas in South Africa, Mm -hmm. where 69% of the plants are endemic. So it's like beautiful protected wildlife, Mm -hmm. very indicative of the region. Yeah, very wild, very free, you know, (laughs) critters roaming the plains. Okay, Um, yeah. (laughs) But so so in, in amongst all of this like bucolic a natural uh stuff you can find uh, like six star accommodation yeah six star it's really lush like the villas have got their own private pools like Mm. they're really luxe and obviously future found sanctuary has a holistic wellness program yeah of course yeah of course and that includes forest bathing tai chi yoga and really aims to get guests at one with their natural surrounds. Yeah, I need a good forest bath. My um, my aura is really starting to smell. Mm, cleansed in the forest. Cleanse me. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a trend that we've discussed before in this podcast of basically people want some sort of wilderness type experience, but they also want to be in the swankiest hotel accommodation imaginable mm-hmm. yeah yeah and why not you know like um you want the creatures but you also want the creature comforts <laughs> very good yeah i mean if you've got the cash why not be comfortable <laughs> yeah that's, that's what i say <laughs> that's what i say like why set up in you know a muddy pop-up tent in a field when you can 
check into a villa on the top of Table Mountain. Yeah, okay. Moving on, have you got a book for us? Yeah, Kinfolk Wilderness. Okay, so continuing the wild theme. Mm -hmm. You are aware of Kinfolk as a brand, I'm sure. Mm, I have some of their books on my coffee table. Do you really? I do. I have Kinfolk Home, which is a survey. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's a survey of impossibly beautiful homes that <laughs> creative people living around the world. So you can feel crap about your own home. Yeah, I feel terrible. I honestly, I look at how they live and I think my life is a farce. <laughs> <laughs> live in a dumpster. Yeah, I'm like, I'm a joke. I'm, a, I'm an absolute joke. Look at these people. So will this new book evoke similar feelings for me? Yes. <laughs> it'll make you feel like you know every time you go on some kind of wilderness holiday it'll make you feel like what the heck am i doing wrong mm, okay. <laughs> i don't look like this i don't have the right gear the light isn't perfect yeah you know life doesn't have that kind of film quality that they have in the photography in kinfolk yes okay uh, magazines and books so yeah it's just very essentially just like very beautiful photographs of wild destinations mm. moving on jess we've got lady singers doing sneakers ah the lady singers the lady singers which which of the popular lady singers are we talking about billy eilish extremely popular lady singer yeah <laughs> and she's she's making sneakers yeah, she's making Air Force Ones, in fact. So she does a collab with Nike and has her own line of Air Force Ones. And the white color came out a month ago, much to many a hype beast's excitement. <laughs> okay, so a new colorway from the Billie Eilish Nike Air Force One line. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot you call it Nike. Well, you know. Nike, Nike. That's yeah. just wrong, though. Anyway, <laughs> we can dis <laughs> we can discuss off air. Yeah, sure. Rihanna was Puma's creative director, and now she sells shoes through her Fenty X line. So she's got men's and women's. Mm -hmm. So Puma's creative director. Yeah. Um, whatever. <laughs> I think I think we're going to disagree on the uh... <laughs> whatever whatever you say. Um, and then Cardi B, she uh, launched a collection with Reebok late last year. It's very colorful. The shoes, very Cardi. Yes, great. I also say Reebok like Reebok. So okay, good. We can agree there. We can agree there. All right. Okay. So basically, women branching out into athletic footwear, and uh, why? Why? <laughs> and just and just why? Well, <laughs> um, you know, it's a good game to get into, I guess. Like it's yeah. traditionally been quite male dominated, Yeezys, etc. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but really, male sneaker collabs go back to like yeah, Air Jordans uh, for way sure. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, not that many women having done it. Not that many famous ladies doing it until recently. Well, yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Ladies wear sneakers too, actually. Mm, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen them. That's equality. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Jess. Mm. I mean, once again, you've inspired me and, and yet made me also feel a tiny bit depressed about my own quality of life. That's what I aim to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what this segment is all about. <laughs> well, thank you very much and enjoy your future globe trotting. Thank you. You as well. On to Location Scout, where we explore the most exciting parts of a destination around the network. 
And this month we are landing in Manchester with the opening of a new venue, Herald's uh, bright artistic future for this happening city in the north of England. And for this we're going to talk to journalist and editor Simon Binns. So let's see if we can get Simon on the phone right now. Hello. Hey Simon. Hi, how are you doing? Well, I'm good and I'm excited to hear about the way Manchester's progressing because it's a bit of a happening destination really, I think, culturally. Yeah, I think the kind of unofficial uh, slogan for Manchester seems to be that there's always something happening in the city. I've lived here for 25 years and kind of I was drawn here because it was a cool place to live all the bands I liked were from Manchester there's football going on there was always something and I think when you walk around the city now there's always someone doing something creative or interesting it never seems to it never seems to stand still Manchester yeah and where are you walking around today so uh, my office is kind of near the northern quarter which is where you'll find a lot of the independent music venues bars restaurants cafes lots of street art big murals this is where manchester's creative community tends to hang out just down the road you get ancoats and then across the city you've got big new parts like spinning fields and deansgate square and all kind of surrounding what used to be the hacienda i suppose which mm. was kind of for a long time manchester's cultural epicenter i think well let's let's talk about the hacienda because people might not necessarily know what that was and what it meant to music in general yeah, so it, it was a nightclub, I suppose, in its very simplest form. But I, I suppose to, to, to people who know it and who loved it, it was it was much, much more than that. So Factory, which was a record label, born in Manchester, Tony Wilson, who people will presumably have heard of. But when he had a show on Granada TV, he would put bands on that he'd never heard of. He was the first person to put Stone Roses on the telly on Granada. And he had a nightclub called Factory, part of his record label, signed bands to it like Joy Division, who then went on to be New Order, Durutti Column, real kind of cool bands in the city but then found success outside of it so suddenly you had all of these amazing things coming out of one particular place the story of course being far more entertaining than than the reality and i think if you watch michael winterbottom's 24 hour party people that tells the story of unbridled chaos frankly and that was kind of that only added to the the mystery and the kind of romance of it all hacienda shut down probably about God, I don't know, 15 years ago now. It's a block of apartments which still bears its name. And if you go around the back of those apartments onto the canal side of the building, you'll see Tony Wilson kind of printed out of uh, a metal sheeting and his quotes and people who came from there, New Order, Joy Division, Stone Roses. I think Madonna played Hacienda at one point. I went to a couple of gigs there in the 90s when I just turned up. And it was always kind of more than a nightclub to a lot of people, I suppose, because it represented what Manchester was as a city at the time. I think now you speak to a lot of younger people, the Hacienda is legend, and there's as many people who are keen to move on from it and plot their own path as there are people who are keen to hark back to it. So that was Manchester in the 80s and 90s. What's happening in Manchester today that's, that's kind of moving it on? Yeah, I think the good thing about Manchester now is that it's not particularly characterised for any one thing. So I think in the 80s, 90s, it was very much kind of new wave, indie, happy Mondays. The sounds and the look were quite similar. There was a little bit of club influence cutting through to indie, cutting through to rock. 
the Smiths, Oasis. I think now, if you look at Manchester, all bets are off. All kinds of music are coming out of this city. You've got some of the most talented rappers in the UK, like H, Bugsy Malone coming out of Manchester. You've still got rock and roll stuff. You've got a tremendous underground scene. You've got fashion. You've got art. You've got even like creative ceramics and furniture and food. And I think Manchester's kind of shaken off this baggy jeans and bowl haircuts kind of image that it might have had in the 90s. And I think Manchester scene is a pretty cool and progressive city. And if you look at Manchester International Festival, which happens every two years, and they've they've just built a brand new building in Manchester called Factory, which opens this year, and that'll be a commissioning hub for that event. MIF has has made a, a point of commissioning brand new work every time it comes in. So every two years, it will create things from nothing and some of those things uh, like Damon Albarn's um, operas will, will go on to tour the world and New Order created a piece which has gone on to, to New York and to Berlin and so actually there's a festival in the city every two years that starts completely from the ground up with a blank sheet of paper and total license to the artists it work with to to create whatever you want really and don't worry about commercial success if that comes great but what's really important is we do something creative and we do something new. So this new venue, Factory, it's even in the name, it's kind of harking back to this like classic era of Manchester club culture, but it's got that kind of progressive international artistic ethos to it. Yeah, I like the fact that it's kind of, it's on the site of the Old Granada Studios as well. So kind of on top of where Coronation Street used to be. Right, yeah. Another another famous Manchester export, right, which is the set of that is now over on Salford Keys near the BBC. So Co- Coronation Street, for, for an international audience, we should explain what Coronation Street is. Yeah, so it's a soap opera in the UK that's been running for, God, I don't know, I, I would, comfortably more than 30 years, I would say, and it's on three or four times a week and it's one of the longest running they call it returning drama now don't they but soap operas is what we call it in the <laughs> uk uh, and it just tells the everyday tales of, of folk from manchester and, and in a previous job where i used to run a tv desk at the local newspaper we'd write about coronation street as if it was real life right it's how important <laughs> it is to, to people around here people get really wrapped up on it and it used to be made uh, at granada studios in manchester which is empty now and got demolished and and if you look at what's coming in that site yes factory is one of those things where it'll be a commissioning hub theater space art space next door soho house are coming in to open a branch which didn't think I'd see the day when Soho House would be opening in Manchester, but there we are. And that's, I think, that's a kind of a testament to the fact that Manchester is as much about attracting new, exciting, interesting from outside the city and internationally. And, and, and international institutions want to be here as much as it is a commitment to kind of supporting local artists in places like Northern Quarter, Rancoats, out in Salford at Islington Mill or the White Hotel as well, and championing kind of the best of both worlds, I think. So just sort of explain what's happening in manchester in terms of media and how a lot of the kind of london media world is finding a new home or a second home in manchester yeah so the bbc have been here for i want to say about 10 years i used to work over there on their tv side and so 10 or so years ago media city opened on salford keys the bbc moved five departments there itv has got a production base there as well as a big studio base as well so some of the biggest shows on tv that you might know uh, in the uk like match of the day for example is filmed in salford and i think that's really shifted the balance of a the, the brain drain we used to call it that would go from manchester to london thinking you had to kind of go there to be part of the media and has brought much more media up to the north of England and in a city called Leeds which is nearby Channel 4 have got a big base there and 
and that will only continue. I think Manchester's an incredibly strong city for media and creative, whether it's creative agencies, design agencies, PR agencies, actual media like Lad Bible, for example, are based in the Northern Quarter. You've got the Manchester News, you've got a whole host of slightly smaller cultural publications that exist quite nicely. And I think it relies on that notion that, yeah, there's always something going on in Manchester. Yeah, brilliant. So talk to us about other venues, maybe venues where things happen that are cultural, but also you can maybe get a nice coffee or some lunch. <laughs> what I used to love about Manchester is that you just see musicians all the time around town and you just think, wow, this is amazing. You kind of get to, they just live in the same life as us. And there's a great pub just in between kind of where the Hassan used to be and near the Ritz just off Oxford Road called the Temple of Convenience. So it's called that because it used to be uh, a public toilet. It's <laughs> underground. So you, you wouldn't, if from street level, all you see is a canopy that kind of pokes up above the ground and then you go down the steps and you're in what we'd only describe as a very long, very thin pub with a bar at the end, basically. But that used to be a regular haunt of Guy Garvey from Elbow. He wrote Grounds to Divorce in there on a napkin while he was working his shift. If you listen to Elbow's songs, there's reference to... Um, a hole in my neighbourhood down which I cannot help but fall. That is the temple of convenience that he used to spend a lot of time in. So uh, you got Big Hands near Manchester Academy, which you'll normally see the bands in there after or sometimes before uh, a gig at Manchester Academy. If you see him in there beforehand, you know you're probably not going to get the greatest <laughs> show you've ever had. But Badly Drawn Boy and, and Ian Brown used to hang out in there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's not many places you won't see. I remember walking around Manchester Art Gallery and just you would bump into Johnny Marr there from the Smiths often and he would give all of his time to like fans who would want to talk about him and talk about the band and, and talk about Morrissey and all that stuff and and then you also if you go to a it's a very strange kind of incongruous place to put it but if you go out of the city uh, up Regent Road near a big Sainsbury's seemingly in the middle of nowhere if you look to your left you'll get to Salford Last Club which is the iconic Smith's photo on the inside cover of The Queen is Dead and you get people coming from all over the world to, to go and stand on the steps of Salford Lads Club and recreate that photo that the band took in the 1980s and if you go in there it's a it's a kind of, I don't know, like a leisure centre sports hall, Lads Club, Youth Club but one of the rooms at the back is is dedicated to the Smiths and there's a whole host of memorabilia there that you just you wouldn't see anywhere else. Have you ever thought of forming a band, Simon? Uh, I haven't spoken to anyone in Manchester who who isn't or hasn't been part of a band, even if they've never played any gigs. And like in my wildest dreams, I kind of I would have loved to have been in the band, but I kind of had to admit defeat. Although I'd, when I when I left school, I did say that the only three things I ever really wanted to be were a rock star, or a footballer, or a journalist. But the reality is, I was only ever good enough at one of them. So that's kind of where we are. <laughs> and that was football. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's, it's the only way. I was, well, you know, Noel Gallagher famously said, like the only out of manchester is with a guitar or a football so and that's that's manchester's kind of currency i suppose if it's not music it's football but actually the two coexist and inhabit each other's worlds in a in a way that i've not really seen anywhere else they kind of almost rely on each other and i think a city like manchester without the music scene that it's got or the football scene that it's got will be a will be a very very different city and one that's much much poorer mm. where are you heading to today in the northern quarter uh, well, if I can string out another coffee, I might uh, I might go and head up to Ancoats, which 20 years ago 
if you went to Ancoats, you won't see much. There was a nightclub called Sankey Soap, which was pretty well known. That's now an apartment block, as is the way. But uh, all around the canal and the marina there is transformed. It's beautiful. There's lots of nice coffee shops, bakeries called Pollen. I love Pollen Bakery. They do amazing, amazing sourdough bread and sandwiches and all the stuff that you would never dream of finding there 20 years ago. Flawed Wines does nice small plates. Manor's got a Michelin star. I've got a Michelin star restaurant in Ancoats. Who'd have thought? So, yeah, I'll probably have a little walk around there and um, try and avoid the geese. <laughs> yeah you do that uh amazing thank you simon thanks for taking us around your city great to talk to you thank you as the site of the first ever gay pride march in 1970 san francisco is world renowned for its lgbtq heritage nowhere is this more evident than in the castro neighborhood san fran's de facto gay village and home to the rainbow honor walk a street-level installation of memorial plaques that pay homage to queer icons. But how did the Castro come to be the epicentre of gay San Francisco? And what has this one-of-a-kind tribute done for the city? Here's David Perry, who founded the Rainbow on a Walk, to tell us the story so far. My name is David Eugene Perry, and I am the founder of the Rainbow Honor Walk in San Francisco, the world's first LGBT walk of fame. There are now currently 44 three foot by three foot bronze plaques in the sidewalks of the Castro. And for those of us in San Francisco, we consider the Castro the quote unquote gay main street. Literally, millions of visitors from around the world have come to San Francisco to see where Harvey Milk lived, where Harvey Milk started his career in life, and where still so many members of the LGBT community come to find home. So this walk of fame spreads across many blocks in the Castro District and will eventually stretch all the way down Market Street, almost to San Francisco City Hall. The San Francisco's Castro District has become known in the last 40, 50 years as the Gay Main Street. However, it started back in the early 20th century as a small residential neighborhood in San Francisco. The center of it is the landmark iconic Castro Theater, opened in 1922, so just celebrating its, its 100th year. And around that neighborhood theater grew up shops and businesses and restaurants, and up into the 1970s, it was an Irish neighborhood, specifically an Irish Catholic neighborhood centered around Most Holy Redeemer Catholic Church. And in the late 1970s, early 1980s, there was a mass migration of gay people to San Francisco. And the Castro District had a lot of what at that time were old fashioned, not very popular Victorian houses. And now when you see them all burnished and painted and glorified, it always reminds me to tell people, this is what happens when a lot of gay men with good taste move into an old neighborhood. And it became, in very short order, the center of gay political life and gay social life. And then in the 1970s, something that was truly transformative worldwide, Harvey Milk was elected to the Board of Supervisors, an openly gay man. What's interesting is the Castro looks very much the same as when Harvey Milk was there. His camera shop is now preserved, and many of the spots in the Castro are real touchstones for the LGBT community all around the world. 
So the Castro Theater is much more than a movie theater. It is a place where the gay community comes to feel home, to feel safe, and where, for instance, the Frameline International LGBT Film Festival, the largest queer cultural event on earth, that's where their home is every June. The San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, they perform there. Every holiday season, along with Donna Sachet, who's known as the First Lady of the Castro in her drag persona, she has a much-beloved performance on Christmas Eve called Home for the Holidays. So the Castro Theater is very much the heart and soul of that neighborhood and of the queer community. And when you see that big neon sign that says Castro coming over the hill from another part of San Francisco, it's instantly recognizable around the world as a landmark for the queer community. You know, if someone had 48 hours in the Castro, well, you need much more than that to sample all the bars and restaurants and clubs there. I think I've tried to in my 36 years in San Francisco. But if you did only have 48 hours, for instance, you might stay overnight at the Castro Hotel on 18th Street, which is the first brand new boutique hotel built in the Castro. You may want to take in brunch at Catch Restaurant. And Catch is, again, not your typical restaurant. It is built in the site of where the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt was begun. So every time you go in to catch restaurant, on the wall is hanging a section of quilt commemorating and memorializing those people who've died from AIDS, HIV. So it's also a community touchstone. And then right down the street, Cafe Floor, which is named for its counterpart in Paris, has long been a spot where artists and activists would hang out. Anne Rice, when she wrote The Vampire Chronicles, wrote part of them in that cafe. You have the Anchor Oyster Bar, has been there now for 40 years, some of the best seafood in town. Everyone loves what their t-shirts say, celebrating 40 shucking years as a historic restaurant. And you also have several spots of worship, which maybe people in the gay community wouldn't often think about, but the difference is the churches in the Castro are very much reflective of the values of the Castro, which is gay family friendly. So most Holy Redeemer, uh, other denominations have churches there. And then another place that has become very special, Coming Home Hospice. It was the first AIDS hospice in the Castro and now has become very much a model for what is called the San Francisco model of care. You have several new art galleries coming about and a lot of queer pop-up spaces that are really truly unique to San Francisco and the Castro. The impact of the Rainbow Honor Walk really extends much beyond the walk itself. It extends beyond the Castro. When I first had the idea in 1994, it was the worst of the age years, and I remember thinking, we need to memorialize not only people who have died, but memorialize the fact that the Castro is really a sacred space to the queer community around the world. And San Francisco is known as a very progressive political city. It's also known as a city where it takes a long time to get things done. So it took from 1994 to 2014 to get it all done. But in 2014, the first plaque was laid in the sidewalk. The first plaque that was laid was Alan Turing, of course, the father of modern computing. And the first plaque that actually came off the, the bronze maker's line of, of creation was Sylvester, the famous disco singer from the 1970s. So that walk is now known around the world. And nothing makes me happier or prouder than when I'm walking through the Castro 
and I see Kathy Amendola, who does the Castro walking tours. People from around the world want to see the history of the place. And I will hear someone speaking in Spanish or French, and I hear them talking about the Rainbow Honor Walk, and then I know they will go back to their home country and they will talk about the history of the Castro, because then they will be part of their lives, not just part of San Francisco's life. The criteria to be on the Rainbow Honor Walk right now is people who lived openly as members of the LGBT community during their life. And the time frame goes back. We have people who were born in the 1800s all the way up to the last century. And these are all people who have passed, who are deceased. The idea was when the walk was created, not to have someone able to lobby for themselves. We wanted to have people that had passed on and this would be their tribute. So, for instance, we have Christine Jorgensen, who in the 1950s became known as the first real openly transgender person. She was an entertainer and, of course, went on to, to become quite famous and an icon for the transgender community. You have Randy Schiltz, who was an amazing writer. He famously wrote the book and the band played on, and he was the journalist who covered the beginning part of the AIDS pandemic. You have Del Martin, who, as long, along with her wife, Phyllis Lyon, were the first lesbian couple, the first same-sex couple, married in the state of California. You have Oscar Wilde, the famous Irish wit and writer. And you even have a member of the indigenous tribe from California, Weewa. Weewa was known as what is Two-Spirit. And back in the 19th century, he was so esteemed, or I should say nowadays, you wouldn't say we, but they, uh, were so esteemed that they were invited to the White House to speak to the president. So it reflects the diversity of our community, and it reflects the fact that long before Harvey Milk was openly gay in the Castro, there were people living openly gay lives and helping their community. The Rainbow Honor Walk is very much an ongoing concern. I led the organization for 10 years, and then I passed the torch to a new generation of leadership. But it's still very much part of my life and, and my history, and I work on it literally every day. Whenever it's someone's birthday, like the other day, it was Jane Addams' birthday, the first woman to win a Pulitzer Prize in the United States. Or the other day, it was the anniversary of the death of Federico Garcia Lorca, and members of the Lorca Society come and they leave their tributes on those days. So it's not just something that's in the sidewalk and won't be added to. Every couple of years, another class of LGBT people are added to the Honor Walk. And if you go to rainbowhonorwalk.org, you can see the current list of all the plaques that are current in the ground, and you can see the list of people that were nominated last year and in the next year, those plaques will be manufactured and they will be installed. And I'm sure next year we'll be voting on another round of people to be memorialized. The Rainbow Honor Walk is a completely volunteer-run organization. We have no paid staff and we receive no money from the city of San Francisco or the state of California. Each one of the plaques costs about $5,000 to manufacture. So we depend upon people making those donations, which are tax deductible. And if you want to know how you can support the Rainbow Honor Walk, please go online to rainbowhonorwalk.org. As David said, you can find out more about the Rainbow Honor Walk at rainbowhonorwalk.org.
We finish as always with What's On, where we find out what is indeed on across Vera in the worlds of film and TV. And we're joined for this by critic Al Horner. Hello, Al. How are you doing? Hey, Johnny. Doing good. Nice to be back. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got some juicy visual treats for us. I do indeed. From assassins in Paris to <laughs> well, strange remote cabins where apocalyptic things are going on. Yes, yeah, good month. Oh, beautiful. Okay, well, let's start with film then. Okie dokie. Well, my first pick this month is John Wick 4. Mm. And oh boy, <laughs> this is quite something. <laughs> so Johnny, have you seen the John Wick films? Are you familiar with this this master assassin? Well, yes. Uh, as a man, I, of course, have seen the first three John Wick films. I haven't yet seen John Wick 4. Does it take a, a sort of weird outhouse turn? <laughs> Uh, no, unfortunately not. I, I do like how you point out that it is kind of a male rite of passage having seen these films. Like, I feel like the sort of like holy trinity of male things to do in the year 2023 is like, watch John Wick, have a podcast, obviously, and, uh, you know, have, have attempted to make a bad DIY barbecue or something. Yeah, well, I'm three for three on that. <laughs> okay, well, for the uninitiated... Uh, John Wick is a series that's been kicking around for a good while now. The films are directed by Chad Stahelski, who was Keanu Reeves' old stuntman on The Matrix. So there's been this kind of nice sort of uh, full circle moment in Chad now directing Keanu, who as a result of these films has had this huge career renaissance. I mean, he never fully went away because he's Keanu and everyone loves Keanu. But um, yeah, these films have really revitalized him in the kind of like public consciousness as this incredibly committed action star. Keanu plays in these movies a man who initially was a retired assassin, kind of living a life of, of solitude with his pet dog until one day his dog was killed in this home break-in and the people perpetuating this break-in, they didn't know who they were messing with. And mm. the first film is a, is a bit more of a grounded, you know, revenge tale in which John kind of goes back to his life of violence and you, you kind of root for him because his dog was very cute. Yeah. As the series has gone on, it's got more and more cartoonish, but in a way that it's kind of hard to begrudge. And now it's just, it really is like a carnival of like the most inventive fighting and uh, what is known as gun fu. So like mm. Kung Fu, the Kung Fu fighting style, but with guns because someone along the way had the bright idea of, Maybe all these assassins that Keanu is going to fight in these films, maybe they could have bulletproof suits. So they're literally like all dressed as, you know, regular suits on the way to their office jobs. But these suits are apparently bulletproof. They're bulletproof suits. Yeah, they're bulletproof suits. I get it. Yeah, I don't know the science there. This, this is the level to which I enjoy these movies. If someone's like, it's a bulletproof suit, I'm like, yeah. Of course. I'm, 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 I'm happy with that, you know. It's, it's Why uncomplicated. It I, honestly, Al, I'm just enjoying hearing you talk about the violence. I'm like, oh, yeah, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not especially, like, action-orientated in terms of my interests in cinema, but um, I love these movies, and, like, they're so outlandish. I mean, this one's three hours long. The way they keep just upping the ante on what came before is spectacular. Like, not only in terms of action, but in terms of the casts they get. Like Donnie Yen is in this one. Donnie is like uh, like a martial arts cinema legend. And his character that he plays in this one is he plays like a blind assassin. And on paper, you might be thinking like, how is this person able to like navigate this world of ultra violence? 
The answer is spectacularly. <laughs> great, great invention. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. And these films are surprisingly imaginative. There's also some really great supercuts online of all the times that Keanu Reeves says, yeah, in these movies. <laughs> he says it a lot. In fact, it's pretty much all he says. It's a less is more approach to dialogue and a more is more approach to someone getting you know an arrow in their knee before being thrown off a cliff or something so yeah it's good fun right then let's move on to the next movie next movie is knock at the cabin a film i absolutely adored i am a bit of an m night Shyamalan, you know enthusiast borderline kind of apologist a lot of people kind of don't love the films of m night Shyamalan, who is known for his twists he's he's the guy who made the sixth sense and um over the course of his career has kind of built this reputation as this kind of quite Hitchcockian, kind of pulpy master of suspense, but uh, his reputation's been on the decline for a while, I think unfairly. I think he's made some incredible films. But yeah, this is an adaptation of a novel by Paul Tremblay about this young girl and her parents who are vacationing at a remote cabin when these four strangers turn up and they're kind of brought together by visions of the end of the world. And, and they tell this family that basically... They need to make the ultimate sacrifice or the world is going to end. And it's pretty mad how high stakes this film is, considering it's in one location. Pretty much the entire movie takes place in a cabin in the woods. I think it's up there with Shyamalan's best work. Mm. Is there a twist? Oh, well, that'd be giving it away, wouldn't it? Um, It would be, (laughs) yes. Yeah, maybe the twist is there's no twist. Oh, that would be the greatest twist that he could do at this point. Because, yeah, (laughs) people, I think that's why his reputation's been on the slide a little bit. Because people just, they go to these movies expecting, you know, to be surprised in ways that they never saw coming. And that sort of, I think, overtakes, in a way, the experience Mm. of the movie. And um, it's not a fun way to kind of approach approach cinema or approach anything, really. So, um, yeah, this is a really good film that doesn't feel like it's dependent on a twist although there are surprising twists and turns great okay your final movie please al my final movie is scream or scream six rather i should say this is uh yeah the latest in the sort of meta horror franchise that's been going since the 90s went away for a good while came back with uh with a brilliant sort of reboot last year that it, well, it, it was a kind of what they call a legacy sequel insofar as it brought back some of the characters from the original and it, it takes on a lot of the kind of themes and questions and, and setting of the kind of original 90s movies. But this series is very self-reflexive and this sort of serial killer that's on the tail of our characters who we met in last year's film, it seems to be inspired by horror movies themselves. So the whole thing becomes both a gripping horror movie but also kind of a meditation on horror movies and how they work and how they've evolved since the 90s. This one moves the action to New York, so if, like me, you always enjoy seeing the Big Apple on screen, that's a fun element to this. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. I did not see the ending coming, as I never seem to do with these films. And uh, yeah, in terms of the the sort of violence of it all, you know, it's a horror movie, it's a slasher movie, there's there's blood and gore, but there's also a pulpiness to it that means like it, it never feels too somber, too grim. So yeah, it's it's kind of a fun ride more than anything. Great. And have you got any killer TV suggestions? Oh, killer is the absolute (laughs) appropriate word there. Johnny, have you heard about Barry? Have I heard about Barry? I love Barry. Good man. That's what I wanted to hear. So Barry is one of my favourite 
favorite favorite shows i have bored all my friends to death with my constant badgering them to watch this show because um it's kind of been slept on a little bit but it's absolutely phenomenal it sounds like a comedy it sounds like an out and out comedy and when you look at the cast list bill Hader, who's known for snl uh, Henry Winkler, who's known for Happy Days and has kind of done all these comic roles since then. The Fonz. Henry the Winkler Fonz is indeed, the Fonz. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You would think that this is going to be a comedy. The premise sounds like a comedy. It's about this hitman played by Hader, who, on a job, whilst tracking down someone who he's supposed to kill, he encounters this uh, this acting class and he sort of walks into this acting class chaired by by Henry Winkler. And almost on the spot, he kind of has this existential crisis and realizes he's unhappy with his life of violence and instead he wants to become an actor. That sounds, Hitman aspires to become a thespian. That that sounds like a comedy. And there is comedy to this show. However, it's also this incredible, like quite Breaking Bad-esque, but in reverse, like Breaking Good, if you like. It's this meditation on, um, can you be redeemed for, for bad things you've done? Can art redeem? all these different things. It's really, really gripping. It's this kind of like gangland LA tale fused with this kind of Hollywood story. Barry ends up in the midst of all these other aspiring actors. And um, the entire thing is is thrilling. It's hilarious. And uh, I think it's been a complete reinvention of, of Hader. The show is now ending and now he's heading into a new life after Barry with his options wide open in terms of where he might go. He's now considered a great dramatic voice as well mm. as a great comic voice and now in its final season as well so you can have that sense of like you know that it's going to reach conclusion and I, I like that you know when I start a show I'm like okay they've got to they know where they're going with this yeah I'm not going to name any names but there have been some shows where they're definitely spinning their wheels trying to work out how long are we going to drag this out for you know and, and <laughs> this is not that it's so lean and every second counts. And, and as you say, the final season is now airing on TV. I think it's season three that is on the service today. So, you know, it's uh, there's a good amount of this show to kind of dig your teeth into. But it's always maneuvering towards this ending, this very, very concrete conclusion to this story. So, yeah, mm. I love that. Excellent. OK, more TV, please, Al. On a completely different note, Life and Beth mm. is a comedy drama series that um, yeah, I've kind of fallen in love with. I, I don't know if you're a fan of Amy Schumer, Johnny, but uh, Amy Schumer's this comedian who's been around for a good decade or so. She's maybe best known for Trainwreck, which uh, coincidentally starred Bill Hader alongside her. Yeah, I, I love Amy Schumer. And, and she's also, I think, known for like a very honest brand of comedy that talks about sex, which, you know, I, re I really, really enjoy. Yeah, and there's al there's almost been like a sort of outrageousness to a lot of her comedy before, but over the last decade or so, you know, she's she's pulled back some of that provocation, and now it's a bit more kind of filled with pathos, and it's it's a bit more kind of like almost introspective. So she she has this show that she created from the outset that doesn't seem like much is it's just about a woman who basically ha called Beth, as you may have guessed, mm. who seems to have this like idyllic life, but. She starts to kind of engage with her past and think about who she is and take stock of, of where she is as like a, a woman, I think, approaching her 40s. Michael Cera is in the show, who you may know from Arrested Development, Superbad, things like that. He's very selective with the roles he takes on. So it's always great to see him. And it's, uh, it's obviously a sign of how good the material is, I suppose, that he wanted to be involved in this. It's like an indie quality check, isn't it? Have you got Michael Cera? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> if he's, he's in... a, a sort of lanky ghost kind of giving his blessing to uh, certain <laughs> projects. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think it's like the Amy Schumer project with the most depth and nuance to date, I'd say. I had a great time with it. It's a couple of seasons in now. And uh, it's also kind of, you know, it's set in Manhattan again, like Scream. And it takes advantage of the location. It just feels very vibrant and real and, and kind of relatable too. Like, I think like a lot of the journey that Beth goes on in this, some people will be able to relate to. And um, yeah, it's good fun. Basically, any show set in New York where people think about themselves and their feelings, I'm like, mm, mm, yeah, I'll watch that. Uh, okay, <laughs> final show then, please, Al. Well, from New York to Blackpool, mm. a no less glamorous place. Yeah. Yeah. Funny Woman is, I guess the most productive way of putting it is, if you've seen The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, this is kind of being loosely described as a, as a UK equivalent. It's an adaptation of a Nick Hornby novel. And it stars Gemma Arterton, who I think is one of our kind of like... Yeah, love her. Yeah, me too. I feel like, you know, you don't see her enough. I always want to see her more in more things. So, uh, yeah, this is just a really fun, again, a comedy drama. It's a period piece. This funny woman, the titular funny woman, Barbara Parker, played by Arterton. She's been crowned Miss Blackpool Bell, 1964. And, um, yeah, it just kind of follows her life as a funny person in an era in which... Women kind of weren't allowed to be funny in the way that they are today, you know, um, much like Miss Maisel. So, yeah, it's it's good fun. It's a great period piece and a period and a place that we don't see on screen very often. I had a good fun time with this. It's, uh, yeah, not a story you see on screen much, but it's uh, it, it's a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, thank you, Al. Well, I feel like you've covered the bases there of, you know, like people exploring the depths of their own feelings and personality and futures and then just some men bashing things. Uh, <laughs> so something for everybody there. And, um, you know, you've, you've done some impressions before on this podcast, Al. I wonder if you wanted to finish up with a Keanu Reeves-esque, yeah. This is all you invite me back on for my impressions. <laughs> Okay, all right. Keanu, if you're listening, this one goes out to you. Yeah. That's very good. It's almost like he's here with me. Al Wick, that's what they call me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, Al. Thank you. Really appreciate it, Johnny. That's all for this month's podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm about to disappear into my man cave to watch all the John Wick films back to back. The Vera Magazine podcast is made by Ink Studio for Virgin Atlantic and is produced by David Clack at Perfect Loop Productions. I've been Johnny Ensel and I'll see you next month. Bye.